Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on today's episode of the show about the show. And as always, my name is Devlin Clark, and this is episode 47. Today, I have the immense honor of being joined by author Herb Gould, who who is the author of the new book, The Run Don't Count, The Life and Times of Frank Chance and His 1908 Chicago Cubs. We're going to talk a lot about the 1908 Cubs today. We're also going to talk about this year's 2019 Cubs. We might even touch base on the 19, or I'm sorry, the 2016 Chicago. 2016 Chicago Cubs that, you know, had a pretty good season. We're going to talk about people such as Sammy Sosa, Joe Tinker, Johnny Evers, Frank Chance, Mordecai Three Finger Brown, and everybody else in between. In addition to being an author, Herb is also a former writer at the Chicago Sun-Times, a vendor, and a groundskeeper at Wrigley Field in 1969 and in 1984. And by 1984, he'd become a columnist. It is my distinct honor and my immense pleasure to welcome on author of The Run Don't Count featuring The Run Don't Count, The Life and Times of Frank Chance and his 1908 Chicago Cubs, Mr. Herb Gould. Herb, how are you doing this morning? Great, Devlin. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on. So let's let's talk a little bit um, before we get in too much about the book. Um, let's talk a little bit about how how you kind of got into the sport of baseball. Was it always your favorite sport? Did your parents get you into it? Was it school? What was it? How did you get into baseball? Great question. Uh, you know, I grew up in a, a real sports-oriented family. My dad, my uncles, um, and baseball, you know, was when in the 60s when I was a kid baseball was the number one uh you know we we certainly watched the bears in the NFL but that was more of a part-time thing uh and, and we watched the Blackhawks you know, I know you're up in Minnesota I mean I covered the Blackhawks for 5 years I love hockey uh and most of my my adult career I was on college sports but baseball was the beginning uh for me and I think probably most sports fans of my generation because it was every day for six months, you know, and even though the Cubs were really not very good when I was young, I was, I was all excited in 1963 when they finished two games over 500, I and mean, that was the high watermark until uh, I was uh, an adult. It was it was laughable how, how uh, uncompetitive they were until that uh, 69 team came uh, upon us. But, yeah, baseball, you know, baseball is the all-American sport, which is one reason why – uh, I ended up doing uh, this this novel about 1908 because it's not just about the, the 1908 Cubs. It's about the dawn of spectator sports in America. You know, uh, until the early 1900s, we were a very rural society. And, and then in the early 1900s, people started flocking to cities. Uh, we had trains and newspapers, you know, that, you know, important tools that allowed baseball teams to move around and people to read about their teams and, and stir up interest. Um, so, yeah, baseball, I think, you know, it, even though it, it has many challenges today, uh, and even though we, we, you know, live and die with other sports much more so than baseball in many ways, 
baseball started it all, and, and that it, that can never be changed. Yeah, absolutely. And when you when you kind of look at baseball, do you do you look at that early kind of pre World War One, World War Two era, maybe the first twenty to thirty years of the of the twentieth century? Do you kind of look at that as kind of the making of baseball and having that be when it became America's pastime? I, I think so. I mean, I think you're exactly right. It was. You know, there was a time in America when uh, the three big sports were baseball, boxing, and horse racing. You know, the other team sports all followed baseball. And, uh, you know, being a Cub fan and a writer, you know, what better period to look back to than, you know, 1908, uh, actually from, from 1906 to 1910, the Cubs won 530 games. You know, that's over 100 games a year, and that's a five-year record that, that still stands. So, you know, when I was sitting there watching them struggle in the 60s and then even in 69 when they looked like they might do it and still broke our hearts, you know, they were they were not, you know, a consistent winner until very recently. Um, it was easy as a Cub fan to look back at that era, you know, in the early 1900s. But, yeah, it really did sort of set the tone for everything, you know. They, it really, they didn't even know how to accommodate fans in a real sense. The stadiums in those days were, were wooden uh, buildings that could hold maybe ten to 15,000 people. And uh, right after the 1908 season, which was immensely popular, you had tight pennant races in both the American and National Leagues. Three teams in the National League, four teams in the American League, who played down to the very last week, even the last day of the season. So now you had like twenty and twenty-five, you know, twenty twenty-five thousand people showing up at stadiums that that could not accommodate those numbers. All of a sudden, nineteen oh nine, the Pirates build Forbes Field, the first brick and mortar one of the first brick-and-mortar stadiums. I have a lot of detail about that in my book because the Pirates were a big Cubs rival. Here in Chicago, the Charlie Comiskey built Comiskey Park in 1910. Uh, you know, the Fenway Park, which still stands as long as well as Wrigley Field, came just a couple of years later. You know, it was, it was really when the whole sport took off and really when team sports took off. I mean, these stadiums were... You look at how resilient they were. They stood, you know, for 40 or more years, uh, you know, even though Wrigley and Fenway are the only two left. You know, Tiger Stadium in Detroit had a long run. Uh, The stadiums in Philadelphia, St. Louis, all stood for decades. Now you see how they get recycled. I just noticed, uh, you know, the Cubs are in Texas this weekend, and they mentioned that Texas is getting a new domed stadium. Uh, and the, the one they're in was built in 1994. Uh, you know, these stadiums get recycled now, but the ones from the beginning era played for a long, long time, and uh, they were really, you know, if, if any of our listeners have a chance to go to Wrigley Field or have been to Wrigley Field, they'll know what, I was t- what I'm talking about. I mean, it's just the atmosphere is, is phenomenal, and, and that's why all the, most of the modern stadiums, really have drawn from 
you know, architecturally, they, they have a retro feel to them, the good ones, because of the experience that you saw with Wrigley Field and, and uh, the ballparks of that era. Yeah, absolutely. You're totally correct. And, you know, I, I went to Wrigley Field about 10 years ago, and I was there on an off day, and one of the things that I wanted to do I went with a friend of mine, and we actually toured uh, Wrigley Field. They took us everywhere around the field. We got to sit in the bleachers, and we got to go up on the roof. And, and or not up on the roof, but we got to go all around the stadium. We got to go in the clubhouse, all that kind of stuff. And then the next day, we went to the game, and I told my friend that if we were gonna, if we were going to go to a Cubs game, we were going to do it the way Chicago fans do it, and we were going to sit out in the bleachers. And we did, and it was 85 degrees, and it was Cubs Cardinals, and I can tell you that what you just said is absolutely correct. It is an experience unlike any other. Yeah, I mean, it. it I, I, was, I was really, uh, you know, in heaven when I was in high school and early part of college. I was a a vendor at Wrigley Field. I sold hot dogs and Coke and peanuts. And and then I also was able to work uh, as an extra man on the ground crew part-time. We would, you know, we used to say we always sweep the series. You know, we had our brooms and we'd, we'd uh, clean up in the upper deck after the games. And what a great thing. You know, you just kind of sweeping with a broom in the upper deck uh, at the end of a nice summer day. And then the next morning we would... Uh, clean up the bleachers and, and there were, you know, to be there, you know, to be a teenager and spending, you know, 12 and 15 hour days at Wrigley Field, uh, it just didn't get any better than that. You know, the atmosphere, as you mentioned, was really phenomenal and there was an excitement because uh, I, I don't know if people remember, but that 69 team actually led the National League East well into September and famously, you know, broke our hearts. Uh, as the Mets came on with a phenomenal pitching staff that fall. And the Cubs were very interesting for, you know, a couple of years after that as well. Um, but, yeah, that's what baseball is all about. It's that daily kind of ritual, whether you're going or not. You open up the paper, you see the box scores. You know, it, it just gives you something to uh, to follow every day as part of your uh, your routine. And, you know, I think one of the beautiful things that you kind of touched on is kind of that rhythm and kind of that pace that you get in baseball. You know, it is every day. It is going to be there tomorrow. And I know for me personally, one of the ways that I really learned how to count and really learned how to um, learn about stats was by reading box scores and by listening to baseball. And when I was a when I was a kid, what I used to do is score. Is I used to score the games, um, and then uh, you know I would play them back to my dad and tell him you know what happened game by game or pitch by pitch, inning by inning. And I think that's that's a connection that a lot of kids kids don't have. You know, you hear a lot of you hear a lot of stuff on social media now, and you've got cell phones and things like that. But you know, sometimes just reading the newspaper is the way to do it. Oh, absolutely, you know, and, and that's why in the book I sort of made it, it, it's sort of a diary style. I just have, you know, each day or, you know, skip over some days, but, but it goes day by day. I have a narrator who 
is um, a bat boy who sort of becomes a lucky charm for the team initially, but then uh, befriends the players, Frank Chance, Joe Tinker, Johnny Evers. I was pleased to hear you say Johnny Evers because we routinely say Evers, even though Evers is the preferred spelling by the family. At any rate, yeah, it's, that's kind of why I wanted the flow of the book to be. You know, you're you're following a team day by day, uh, and it's not only 1908, but you know, most a, a big, you know, probably half of the book is about 1908, but the other half is about what happens to these guys, you know, in the following years, and sort of how a team, you know, sort of descends after it has reached the pinnacle, and uh, you. You know, the, because that's really what baseball is. Baseball, that's why I think we love it, is because it's, it's sort of, it's a, it's a microcosm of our, of our lives, you know. You, you see players who, who have talent, but they have to develop it when they're young, and then as they age, they have to find ways to stay competitive, even though their, their pure speed and strength is in decline. And uh, those are all themes that I really looked hard at in the, in the book, because I think that you know that's really what baseball is. It's that that daily daily um, building and then you know sort of climbing and descending, and uh, it's just it, it's irresistible. Yeah, and I you know I think I think the thing that I personally love the most about baseball is that it's 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 a metaphor for life, you know, in a lot of ways. You get a lot of you get a lot of um you get a lot of fastballs and every now and then, you know, you have to try and hit one out of the park and sometimes you fail, sometimes you don't. My personal slogan is live life like a three like you're in a three one count. You know, <laughs> you just kinda of, you know, it it's kind of a metaphor for life, you know, the best the best players fail 70% of the time and that's kind of the way life is you know well that's really true and, and that was something else that I tried to bring out in the book I mean Frank Chance the manager was uh, also a talented player and a first baseman good hitter but he liked to crowd the plate got hit by pitches a lot uh, and, and he also had a sort of checkered uh, off the field career as a an automobile driver it was the early days of automobiles and you know he would bump into things just the same as he would get hit by pitches so you're so right I mean that metaphor was something I really used a lot of in the book uh you know same deal with Joe Tinker and Johnny Evers Tinker was a guy who who learned to hit Christy Mathewson by going a little you know by by staying back a little bit and swinging from the heels uh, so that he could get to outside pitches. And um, Johnny Evers was a guy who choked up and kind of just popped the ball where, you know, hit him where they ain't, sort of a wee willy keeler guy. And that was the way they lived their lives off the field. You know, Joe Tinker was always looking for the get rich quick off the field. He had a lot of business opportunities that, you know, were sort of, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, and Johnny Evers was was tried to go with a shoe store that was a much more stable kind of a of a of a business. And you, you're just so right; they all had 
you know, what they did on the field is very similar to what they did off the field. You know, their personalities came out, and, and those were things that I really tried to draw out in the book. And, and then on top of that, you have to mesh those personalities. You know, Chance was the perfect leader, um, you know, really an American hero in his own way, the way he identified talent and the way he he worked players together and manipulated and maneuvered, you know, as a leader to get the best out of people. Uh, Tinker and Evers couldn't stand each other. You know, it was sort of strange to think that they were this great second baseman and shortstop and had a, a fight early in their careers and by mutual agreement didn't speak to each other for years and years, um, even well beyond their playing days. Uh, and then they finally had a... Uh, uh, a moment when they got back together and, and, and embraced uh, late in their in their lives, and that was you know a drama that I just couldn't resist in, in putting in the book, um, you know. And then you can just go down the line. I mean, the whole clubhouse was filled with these colorful personalities, and it made for a rich, rich um, fabric to to make a, a story about baseball, which I, I hope people will enjoy. Let's talk a little bit. You met, you brought up earlier how, as a kid growing up and as a young man, you were a vendor at Wrigley Field. How'd you end up? How'd you get that gig? Uh, you know, it was just by happenstance. One of my uh, friends in high school, his older brother had become a vendor, and so he. Uh, and and this was a time when, you know, in the late '60s, the Cubs were going from being a really sleepy team to drawing really well and their attendance was booming. So the, the, um, the Cubs were looking for more vendors. And because my friend's brother was already in, uh, he brought us in and, um, you know, it kind of snowballed from there. I brought some of my friends in, you know, it was a booming business because the Cubs were winning. And, uh, it was also kind of a business of attrition. You know, if there were too many vendors, then, some of them would lose interest because there just wouldn't be enough uh, customers to go around. But that that wasn't really an issue. Basically, just a friend. And uh, then once I was there, uh, I happened to be in a place where the uh, groundskeeper, a man named Pete Mark Antonio, who was a, a you know a character in himself, you know, very regal, old school kind of man. I'll never forget being in his workshop. And this was like 1969, and he had a nail above the, the workbench with, you know, those yearly schedules that teams put out. And on this nail, I looked one day, the schedules went back to 1943, you know, and I was awed by that. I was a history major at the University of Wisconsin, so I've always been fascinated by history. And, and being in Wrigley Field, you know, it was just so chock full of history in every corner if, if you took a tour of it, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's just so historic. I mean, and the way the ballpark was, you know, it, it opened in 1914 or so for as a Federal League team, but they made additions to it as time went on. It didn't have an upper deck initially, and there were many changes. And even since, you know, it, and there continue to be many changes as the new owners upgrade the ballpark. But, you know, you just see all those layers of history. So once I was there, I was not going to go away. 
that that's fantastic. That's great that, you know, a friend got you involved and it became, you know, six, 55, 60 years later, it became a, uh, you know, it's still something that you love to do. You love, you know, talking about the Cubs. Let's talk a little bit about how, um, obviously, you became a vendor. How did you get involved in journalism and begin writing for the Chicago Sun-Times? Well, I was always interested. Uh, I grew up in uh, Deerfield, the north suburb of of Chicago, and, you know, I wrote for the high school paper. I was the sports editor there, and then when I was at the University of Wisconsin, I I wrote for the college paper, and I had a part-time job at the Wisconsin State Journal, uh, writing headlines and, and, and editing copy. Uh, and then I was, I was a history major as an undergrad, but I, I got a master's in journalism at Northwestern after being at Wisconsin. And uh, then I had a job. I worked out in Albuquerque for a while. I was a, a desk man and a news editor, copy editor, and then came back to the Daily News in Chicago. And when that closed, we moved to the Sun-Times. And there came a period where they were, um, you know, there were opportunities to move from copy editor to general assignment reporter, uh, and then to feature writer. And then um, when Rupert Murdoch bought the Sun-Times in 1984, they really stepped up the sports coverage. And it was just, you know, I I had been doing some part-time work for the sports section, and I was able to move over full-time, and it was really a, a thrill because 1984 is when the Cubs were uh, winning the division, their first postseason play since 1945. So I was involved in that, went to San Diego uh, to see the meltdown out there, which didn't turn out well, but it was, you know, professionally it was a phenomenal thing to do. And then in 1985, I was helping out on the Bears you know, we when whenever a team goes well, I'm, I'm sure your readers will know if they look at the Star Tribune. Um, they, whenever there's a team doing well, you put extra people on it. So I, I would just jump around to those things. Uh, and I also happened to be covering Notre Dame in 1988 uh, when they won the national championship. I wrote a little book about that. And then, you know, I, I've always sort of been able to move around. I did the Blackhawks in the early 90s. Uh, a lot of time at Met Center, North Stars and Blackhawks. So that was a great rivalry. Um, you know, you just persistence, I guess, is the main thing. You know, and it's really difficult. I admire the young people who want to be sports writers and sportscasters today because it's so competitive. But you know, if you're persistent and you really want to do it, then uh, you just roll up your sleeves and, and hang in there. And uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Let's talk a little bit about that 1984 um, Chicago Cubs season. You mentioned uh, being out at Jack Murphy Stadium against San Diego. Talk to people who may not be familiar with what happened. Tell people, give some people some background on that. Yeah, you know uh, the Cubs won the first two games. It was it was a best of five, and the first two games were in Chicago, and the Cubs won the first two games. You know in a a real romp. I think the first game might have been like 13 to nothing or something. Rick, um, the pitcher, I'm blanking. Why am I blanking? Rick Sutcliffe, the pitcher, hit a home run. You know, I mean, it was it was a joyride the first two day uh, games, 
And then we all went out to San Diego and said, well, the Cubs just need to win one of these games to be in the World Series for the first time in 39 years. And I think what people forget is that there was an umpire strike that postseason. So they had, um, you know, amateur umpires who had been brought in from college ranks to – you know, officiate the games, and I think that hurt the Cubs in a way, but I, you can't blame it all on that. And, uh, you know, Gary Matthews, I remember having conversations with him, one of the Cubs outfielders. You know, I mean, I remember one at bat where he came up with a couple guys on, and he, he got a couple of really strange strike calls, and now he's got two strikes and he has to swing at something he doesn't like. You know, they, it was out of character for him and, uh, you know, because umpires valued, you know, batters who knew the strike zone. At any rate, then on Sunday, Leon Durham dropped his glove into some Gatorade and then made a a really excruciating error at first base. And lo and behold, the Cubs lost all three games in San Diego. Uh, And, you know, the legend went on, you know, lovable losers. It was was very painful if you were a, a Cub fan. And, in fact, I I decided that weekend that if I was going to be a sports writer, I was not going to allow my emotions to to become too intense when I was covering teams because it was just too wrenching. You know, you had to be more professional about it. But that said, it was a very exciting year. You know, that was a really fun team, and it's just a shame that it ended on a sour note. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, we're recording this on March 30th, 2019. And on this day in Chicago Cubs history, the Chicago White Sox traded Ken Patterson, a pitcher, and a guy named Sammy Sosa to the crosstown rival Cubs for George Bell. Sosa had a pretty good career in Chicago, didn't he, for the Cubs? Yeah, he did. You know, I have very mixed feelings about that because I feel like the, you know, the Sosa, Mark McGuire, and and so many others who have inflated numbers, you know, the the performance-enhancing drugs are a sore spot for me. I know other people don't get as, uh, you know, attach as much importance. But, yeah, I mean, Sammy created some tremendous excitement. I mean, the the home run race between him and Mark McGuire was phenomenal, um, you know, and, and he was. I mean, I, I think he hit 20 home runs in the month of June in 1998, and that was kind of when I looked at that and I thought, wow, this is fun, but is this real? You know, and I really don't know that it is real. Like Barry Bonds, I mean, I'm sort of old school. I, I don't. I, I think that there, this was not a victimless crime. Uh, being a, an old-timer, I, I think that it tarnished what Roger Maris did and what Babe Ruth did. And um, at the same time, Sammy Sosa was, as you mentioned, I mean, he was an incredibly popular figure. And, and he was until the fans soured on him toward the end of his career for being sort of uh, immature, um, they really loved him, you know, I mean, he, because he was, he was an exciting guy, not only as a, not only as a hitter, but he was also demonstrative, you know, I mean, you really 
embraced him as one of your own. It's just unfortunate that, you know, the that the Peds really tarnished what he did and, and what Barry Bonds and McGuire and, and Roger Clemens, so many others of that era did. Yeah, I I agree with you completely. You know, I've always I'm I'm not a PEDs guy. I I'm a vintage kind of old school guy, kind of along those lines. You are, I think. You know, it it did tarnish the legacy of Babe Ruth and 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 Roger Maris and and those kind of guys too. Um, but talk, give me a give me a little bit of background. Uh, we got about 15 minutes left. I do want to touch quite a bit on your book too, but give me, give me some background as somebody living in Chicago who had their finger kind of on the lexicon of Chicago sports. Tell me about what that 1998 season was like from a reporter's point of view and what the energy was like, you know, in that stadium with the Cubs fans kind of following Sosa as he did that. And then to not only have one guy break the record, but also a second guy who Sammy was really close to. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a daily chapter of excitement and and a love in really. I mean, we remember those. I mean, it was it was fascinating that McGuire and Sosa not only were rivals, but they were tremendous friends. Uh, you know, you could see the warmth between the two of them. And every day there was sort of the excitement of where are they going with this today. Uh, you know, I, I think it really. You know, it, it captivated not only the city of Chicago, but I think the whole country. I mean, that was one of the things. You know, there there had been a, a baseball players' strike a few years earlier, and uh, all those home runs really revived um, America's interest in baseball, and no one more so than than Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. You know, and and as you mentioned, I mean, Sammy had been traded. Uh, George Bell was a was a power hitter of himself, and you didn't really know, obviously, that Sammy had all that in him. And uh, you know, now we know we don't know how much of it he had in him, and how much of it was related to uh, you know some artificial ingredients. Uh, but we can say that about Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire, and many others. But at the time, it was just pure love, and I I have many you know devoted baseball fan friends who are very forgiving of the indulgence of, of the, you know, the performance hamming, enhancing things. You know, they point out that, you know, there was, there was a lot of speed going around, you know, amphetamines in the, in the seventies, you know, now I don't think that was really performance enhancing, but, but I, you know, and it, it, it it, there was just, you know, the mixed feelings are, are, are not shared, I think, across the the uh, the baseball fan spectrum. And, and I expect that at some point those guys will become members of the Hall of Fame, which I won't necessarily agree with, but I'm not going to really lose sleep over. Let's switch gears here. Let's talk about your book. You have a new book out, and it is called... It is the called, run don't count. The life and times yeah, of Frank Chance and his, yeah, you know, um, it's it was it's interesting because I actually started making notes on this when I was a young man in college. I I 
had originally thought of it as nonfiction, and, and I ended up making it a novel because there was so much drama that, that I could do much more with. And frankly, there have been some nonfiction books about 1908 that have come out since I first started thinking about doing this. And then I thought, well, let's make it a novel. Cause it, and I've had many people tell me that it would really, you know, it would translate well onto the screen because there's a lot of dramatics get into the players, you know, conversations and sort of, you know, I, I like to say bring life to the dead ball era. Um, but, yeah, I started making notes in the 70s. I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Even though it's a novel, the research is as thorough, if not more thorough, than many nonfiction books I've read about that era. And I actually, at one point, was thinking about making it a biography of the National League president at that time, a man named Harry Pulliam, who was very bizarre, very troubled, but a very, um, you know, very determined to run a clean, upright league, which was a novel idea then. You know, in the 1890s, the National League was filled with gamblers and drinking and, and, and and fixed games, you know, or at least allegations of, of of fixed games. You know, it was it was sort of a, I don't know, I wasn't professional wrestling as we know it today, but it was it was cl- it was somewhere between that and and a pure sport. Uh, and Pulliam was a fascinating character. I, I don't want to, I don't, I won't do the the spoiler alert here, uh, because he had a nervous breakdown and all kinds of physical problems. And I, I rolled the biography of him into this book. But mainly it's a book about, you know, the team of, of the 1908 Cubs, the players, how they came together, how they worked together. And then as the book proceeds, how the team unraveled and, you know, sort of went its way, as all sports teams do, as players age. Um, but, yeah, I started working on it early, and then I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I got busy with other things in my career and then finally picked it up, oh, a few years ago when I, you know, it was kind of always on my bucket list. Let's finish this book. And uh, so I sat down and, and, and I finished it. I think a lot of people recognize Frank Chance as he was immortalized in Tinker to Evers to Chance, which was baseball's sad lexicon. Um, you mentioned earlier that Joe Tinker and Johnny Evers really kind of despised each other. And when you look at the numbers from that time, they didn't really turn more double plays than any other combo. It just sounded good. You look yeah, at that's Frank right. Chance, yeah, and you look at Frank Chance, and he was. you mentioned earlier um, he was called the peerless leader. He is actually the all-time leader in managerial winning percentage in Cubs history. One of the most important things about the 1908 season is you and I are both fans of not only baseball but also history. Um, Something really important happened on September 23, 1908, when the Cubs were playing the Giants. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's a game that sort of will live on in infamy uh, in the world of the Giants. Uh, it's forever known as the Merkel's Boner game. Uh, there was a, a rookie first baseman, Fred Merkel, was on first base 
in the bottom of the ninth with two outs, uh, runners at first and third, and uh, the next batter hit an apparent single into right center field, uh, and Merkel, before touching second base, headed to the Giants' clubhouse in center field, uh, which was something that was common practice in those days because the fans all would pour onto the field. Uh, I have a photograph of the fans on the field. It's just amazing. I mean, that was their routine exit. At any rate, Merkel doesn't touch second. The Cubs get the ball, and then there's a lot of wrangling for the ball. It's not clear if they actually got the true ball because the Giants were interfering with them. And the Cubs claim a force out, and therefore the run uh, don't count, as the umpire said afterwards. And so that was my title. Uh, Hank O'Day, the umpire, had been involved in an, a very similar situation with the Cubs a couple weeks earlier, and the Cubs had protested that it was a force out. He had disallowed it, but then thought about it and said, well, you know, they're right. I mean, the letter of the law is if the guy doesn't touch second, it's a force out and no one can score. Now, this created a huge furor across the nation. For two weeks, the National League tried to figure out what to do with it. They had a whole procedure. Meanwhile, everyone in New York and Chicago was arguing about it. The New York Times was writing editorials about it. Uh, and then finally, uh, Harry Pulliam, this troubled nationally president, uh, ruled that because the game needed to be replayed. So they replayed the game on October 8th, and that was really a phenomenal thing. I mean, they had 40,000 people trying to squeeze into a ballpark that held maybe a third that many uh, and even, you know, well-to-do people who had tickets and got there two hours early couldn't get in. I mean, fans burned down the left field wall and tried to run through the fire to get into the ballpark. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, you know, if I could go back into a time machine and see one sporting event, I think it would be that replayed game in 1908. I mean, it was, it was just an incredible scene. The Cubs ended up winning that game. Uh, and that was the pennant. I mean, they basically were the dead heat after 153 games. So uh, the Cubs won that game. Frank Chance got sucker punched in the throat uh, on the field by a Giants fan. He he had, like, cartilage damage. He couldn't speak for days. Uh, I have a scene in the book where he's trying to give the victory speech to his players on the train to Detroit for the World Series but he can't really speak, so he has to whisper to Joe Tinker, who conveys his remarks. Um, you know, it was just it was just such an exciting era. You know, I mean, I think she, and it also sort of typifies what was going on in America. You know, think about what what teeming places cities like Chicago and New York were in 1908, with streetcars and people scurrying to and fro. And there were just, you know, the Model T came out that fall. So there were a few cars, but not very many, uh, and horse-drawn carriages. And, you know, and people were pouring into America from Europe. Uh, people were coming off the farms into cities. And here was this baseball, which is becoming this incredibly popular attraction. So, you know, the whole thing I thought was, and, and still think, it just was just a phenomenal scene for a writer to uh, paint a picture of.
Yeah, and, and you mentioned it too. You know, one of the one of the things is that you know you had a combination of the fans on the field. The game was getting dark, but I think the National League decided that the game would only be replayed if the Cubs and Giants finished in a tie that year, which is ironically what happened. And then you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the game on. October eighth, the Cubs won the makeup game four to two and won the pennant. So, yeah, you know, it was a really different era. I mean, in in the American League, the Detroit Tigers edged out the Cleveland Indians by half a game. I mean, they they won the pennant by half a game. The Tigers had an unplayed game against the Washington Senators. Uh, and if they had lost that game, you know, if they played it and lost it, it would have been a dead heat. And the Washington Senators, as I'm sure you may know, had a very strong-armed young pitcher named Walter Johnson uh, who threw as hard as anybody ever did in the game. Uh, That would have been interesting to see if they played that game. And then on top of that, I think the White Sox had two unplayed games if they had played those and won uh, and they'd broken right, it could have been a three-way tie in the American League. So, yeah, they, they changed the rules after that year because they realized that, you know, the competitive balance was was better served if you played out all the games. Also, the uh, you know, that was a great thing for the bottom line. I mean, you can imagine, you know, what, what these games would draw in terms of attendance and, and financial uh, gain. They yeah, it was a different. It was a, a learning time for the owners and and proprietors of uh, the baseball world. The Cubs won the World Series in 1906. They won a record 116 games. They ran away with the pennant. They defeated the White Sox in the 06 World Series. They won no, the 1907. They, they were up. They were upset by the White Sox in 1906 World oh, Series. Yes. You, you're right. They won yep. 116 games, and everybody thought they would smoke the White Sox. And the White Sox were called the hitless wonders. They, I think they hit a team batting average of about 230. And uh, yet the White Sox outplayed the Cubs and won the 06 Series. <laughs> but then the Cubs went on and won the 07 Pennant and Series, and then they beat Detroit. They won basically four games sweep in 07 in, uh, in the World Series. There was a, a rain out to start. Uh, and then the Cubs uh, beat the Tigers again in, in 08. But, yeah, they had an incredible run. I mean, to your point, they really, you know. And then in 1909, the Cubs finished second. The Pirates ran away with it. But the Cubs catcher Johnny Kling, who really is one of the great forgotten players of of that era, I mean, Kling was as good a catcher as there was, and nobody really remembers that. Handled all the pitchers, uh, you know, hit well, ran well. Um, he sat out that year because he couldn't get a raise out of the Cubs owner, and he was a billiards champion and opened a pool hall in, in his hometown of Kansas City. Um, other than that, the Cubs might have won five pennants in a row uh, and even been more memorable uh, than they are today. Um, but yeah, they, they were the point being that yeah, that was a phenomenal run by the Cubs. Also, they had an incredible set of pitchers. Not only Mordecai Three Fingered Brown, 
who had this maimed hand from a, a an accident with a, a farm uh, feeding machine when he was a very young boy. Um, but but Orville overall and Ed Rulebach and Jack Feister, you know, it was the great it was a great four man rotation. I mean, they were in their way they were a they were the, as, as responsible for the Cubs' success as any of the, you know, Tinker to Evers to Chance memories. And they, the pitching was phenomenal on the Cubs in those days. Yeah, Herb, we, unfortunately, that's about 45 minutes. we got to wrap it up here soon. Um, I, do wanna pl- I do want you to have a few minutes to promote your book. It is called The Run, Don't Count, which, as you said, is uh, what the uh, – umpire Harry Pulliam said the run don't count the life and times of Frank Chance and his 1908 Chicago Cubs tell tell people where they can get the book well you can get the book at Amazon books uh I'm selling it in paperback for 1908 and uh I also have a um Kindle version that's there at Amazon books and also if you want a signed copy contact me through my Facebook page and uh, I'll be happy to ship one out to you. Um, but, yeah, it's a, a paperback, uh, but a really nice trade paperback. I, I, I think people will like it. I, I had a really good designer help me put it together, and uh, I got the uh, cover photo from the Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, people tell me it's a really good read. I mean, there's a lot of nice reviews on Amazon. And if you go to my Facebook page, I've got some links to – uh, some other interviews I've done on WGN Radio and Chicago Television. Uh, and I, everybody tells me they, it's enjoyable read. Uh, you know, if you like history and you like, you know, baseball, especially if you like the Cubs, uh, I think you find it really entertaining. I could very easily go another hour with you, Herb. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you giving me some of your time and we were able to connect and finally um, talk about everything Chicago Cubs and everything Herb Gould. Herb, thank you very much. My pleasure, Devlin. Anytime. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been episode 47 with my guest, Herb Gould. Go out and get his book, The Run Don't Count, The Life and Times of Frank Chance and His 1908 Chicago Cubs. Thanks again, Herb. I cannot tell you how how much I appreciate having you on the show, and it's been a real honor. My pleasure, Devlin. I really enjoyed it, too. All right, great. Have a good day. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, wow, what a, uh, what a, fantastic, what a fantastic guest he was. What a great life he's had. He's, you know, he's done everything from – the point of just being a a regular baseball fan to being a journalist to being a vendor to, you know, now a very accomplished author. Um, one of, definitely one of my favorite interviews, you know, I, I, I'm a big history fan. I'm a big baseball fan. And when you, when you mix the two and you, you have baseball history, I could have talked to Herb for hours. So, It's a fantastic, fantastic book. Go out and get it. It's called The Run, Don't Count, The Life and Times of Frank Chance and His 1908 Chicago Cubs. We just spent 45 minutes talking with Herb Gould, and we didn't even talk about the 2016 Cubs championship. 
we'll have Herb on again in a future episode, and he and I will touch base on that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me on episode 47 of the show about the show. I am your host, Devlin Clark, and as always, I will see you down the road in podcast land.